Well, let's clap it up for Bobby and the worship team. And they just thank you for leading us to worship, man. Thank you for leading us. Uh, we're starting a new series, and I'm uh, very excited about it. Uh, countercultural, a study in First Thessalonians. It's a letter that Paul wrote uh, to the Thessalonican church. And uh, we have some resources for you. So in the back, you can snag a journal, a scripture journal. Uh, you can use this to take uh, notes on a Sunday morning, or also the scriptures are in there, so you can kind of jot up First Thessalonians, write prayers and reflections, that kind of stuff in these journals. You can snag one in the back. Uh, second is our series guide. This has got everything you need, uh, kind of for how to study the scriptures on your own, uh, and also for group discussions within your community groups or 3Ds or uh, with folks uh, on the college campus or however you want to do it. So uh, you can snag one of these in the back. Uh, we've printed some out in paper for those of you who are still reading by candlelight, uh, so uh, you can get those back there too. I love paper, man. I love paper stuff, so I'm a handout guy. But uh, uh, those are in the back. Um, and Lastly, uh, we don't have, we used to have a slew of these, we've sold them all, we're going to get more. Um, we, I would recommend this ESV uh, study Bible. It's a great scripture, or a great tool to help you get into the scriptures. It's got commentary and kind of ways uh, to help explain, or it's got a whole bunch of stuff that helps explain the text and maps and all this other good stuff uh, too. So this, this is a fantastic uh, Bible for uh, your personal study and getting to know the Lord on your own times. So... Uh, let me pray for us uh, before we get into First Thessalonians together. Father, as we as we are in just a really uh, interesting time in the life uh, of our country and our church, and just all that is going on, uh, we we know that you desire uh, to speak into our lives, uh, to, to meet us there and transform us in the way we live, that we would uh, glorify, show you off with our lives, uh, and in doing so, we would also have just deep joy and purpose and peace in life as we serve and follow you. And we know that you've revealed yourself in the scriptures, and that uh, we can know you and know what you desire of us and, and how to live for you. Uh, and particularly in First Thessalonians, we we seek you to meet us uh, in this time, uh, knowing that we just desperately need uh, to know you and to follow you as so much um, is going on around us that seems uh, counter to you. Uh, so would you meet us this morning, we pray. It's in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to play a, a bit of a game first uh, when we, uh, before we get into the scriptures together. And I, you know, you may, you may have played this as a kid, or maybe you've played this with your kids. Uh, you look at the pictures and you say, which is different? All right, which one's different? Uh, what's different about it? So uh, see if you can spot it. Which, which is different? Did I hear it? C, yes. Why? The pendant is missing, right? Uh, Pocahontas has her pendant missing there. It's got kind of a Disney theme uh, for us this morning as well. Uh, what, what's missing here for Aladdin, or what's different? Uh, what's different? Which one is different? What is it? B, yeah, man, you guys are knocking this out. Better in first service. So uh, uh, which is different? Right? B is different. His hat uh, is a different color, uh, Aladdin's hat. Uh, uh, this one's uh, Anna, one of my favorite coming up here. So which is different? Which is different? We ought to be different 
as Christians. Uh, this is a, a, a portrayal of what Jesus may have looked like, not the colonized Jesus that you might be used to with the, the white skin and the flowy hair, but more of the first century uh, Jew, a Galilean from the northern part of Israel. Uh, a, a forensic archaeologist uh, did uh, this work where he got a skull from the Galilean area uh, and kind of drew this picture of what Christ might look like. Uh, we ought to be just starkly and shockingly different abnormal because we follow the risen Savior. That everything in our life ought to be abnormal, different uh, than the lives of those around us because we follow the risen Savior. What we're going to do in the book of First Thessalonians, we're going to look at this idea of being a people, being a church that is counter-cultural, abnormal, against the norm. That's how we're going to use the term culture for now, just kind of that simple term of, of what is normal, what springs out of what is uh, being normal as, as, as any kind of human, right, that then creates a culture around us. And, and we as Christians ought to be just starkly different than those around us. So we'll look at the book of 1 Thessalonians for the next 11 weeks in that theme. But this morning, we're going to look just at verse 1 in the context of the Thessalon- uh, Thessalonian church. And we're going to ask ourselves, uh, why is the Christian life a countercultural life? Why is the Christian church a countercultural movement? It's kind of a question of definition. And then we're going to ask ourselves, well, why would I want to live a countercultural life? Why would I want to live a countercultural life? It's more of a, a question of desire. Uh, so let's get into this together. Uh, why is the Christian life a countercultural life? And to answer that question, we're going to primarily look at how the church in Thessalonica started, in Thessalonica started. How did this church start? It will show us uh, why is the Christian life a counter-cultural life. Uh, First, when we get into any book, we need to know, right, the context. Uh, What is this book about? Who wrote it? Uh, Who's it written to? This kind of thing. Context matters. Uh, Take, for example, if I said to you, uh, sit down, right? Context matters. If I'm a teacher in a classroom saying, sit down, well, it means kind of, hey, it's time to be seated. It's a, it's a command of, of, of get your butts in your seats so we can get on with the information. Uh, but if I said to you, sit down, and I'm welcoming you into my home, and I'm actually saying kind of sit around the di- uh, dining room table with me, it's got a whole different meaning, right, because context matters, and so the context of the uh, church in Thessalonica and this letter of 1 Thessalonians uh, is as follows in a, in a broad way. Uh, first off, the author of the letter, as we see from uh, verse 1, and, and like I said, we're going to stay just in verse 1, but I thought it would be awkward for Bobby to read just verse 1. Uh, it, the author is Paul. Uh, Paul is writing with Salvanius, who is Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This is Paul the Apostle. Uh, He has met the risen Lord uh, in a miraculous way. Uh, Jesus resurrected, has come uh, before him in a vision, and he he gives his life to Christ. And then he writes a bulk of our New Testament. Uh, This is one of his first letters. Actually, it's dated probably in 51 to 53 A.D., somewhere in there. 51 to 53 A.D. Why why do we say that? And and, um, it's because the historic events going around the time that Paul is talking about and uh, are mentioned in the book of Acts as Paul kind of travels around uh, all of Turkey and Greece and the Mediterranean sharing the gospel and planting churches. Uh, In our ESV study Bible, it says this, uh, The Delphi inscription 
was a letter from the Emperor Claudius to the city of Delphi. And it dates Gallio's proconsulship of Achaia, which is one of these uh, areas, a Roman area right next to Macedonia where Thessalonica is, uh, in about A.D. 51 to 52. And Acts 18, 12 to 17 mentions Gallio toward the end of Paul's Corinthian stay. Why do I say that? There's all these events in history going on which are talked about in Acts and talked about in 1 Thessalonians and, and talked about in uh, kind of the annals of history that say this is a real church in a real time and, and it's because a real resurrected Savior has resurrected that we've got Paul and all these other followers who are going uh, from town to town talking about Jesus uh, when Gallio and, and, and uh, Claudius and others are reigning and ruling in, in real history. This really happened. It's not a tale. Happened somewhere around 51 to 53 A.D. when Paul is in Corinth after his visit to Thessalonica when he writes this letter back. And by the way, uh, would anyone want this? Does anyone want this uh, Bible? Anyone? It's yours to the first who raises their hands. No one wants this study Bible. Mike? No, you already have one. Who wants it? I'm missing a hand. Where's oh, Stephanie? Stephanie's in the back. Let's clap Stephanie up. This is hers. Uh, Steph, we're just going to let you grab it as we go on here uh, because no one was courageous and jumped right in, so we lost a little time there. 51 to 53 A.D., uh, and the setting is in Thessalonica. You can, no, you can, you got to come up here and get it. You said you were courageous, countercultural. Here you are. Yeah, you got it. Um, Thessalonica, politically, what is the city like? And economically, it's the capital of Macedonia, which is a, a Roman province that's being, uh, you know, Rome has captured kind of this whole area and now rules over it and has split it up into these divisions. And Macedonia is one, and Thessalonica is the capital of Macedonia. It's a port city. I think we've got a, a map of it here. This is kind of all of Paul's journeys. And it's a port city. You can see it right there, uh, right on the uh, Aegean Sea. Uh, so uh, it's a port city, and, and it's... Uh, there's commerce roads going north and south all through it. Uh, and then the Ignatian Way kind of flows through it, too. So this is a, a road from Rome all the way into all the uh, territories that Rome has uh, captured. And it's kind of a military road. So, uh, so that Rome can take their troops and, and go across the Adriatic Sea and then into their uh, provinces and, and, and rule and reign and keep the peace. And that road flows right through Thessalonica. So it's a kind of a metropolitan uh, sort of area, uh, capital city, uh, wealthy, a lot going on, cultures clashing, all coming together. Religiously, uh, these folks are, are worshiping all kind of the Greek and Roman gods, right? The pantheon of all these other uh, gods. You got Zeus, think that kind of thing. Uh, they're, they're worshiping these Greek and Roman gods. And then there's also the uh, imperial cult. So they're worshiping Claudius and the other emperors of this time. Uh, he, to them, is not just a ruler, but God himself, uh, particularly the Romans in this area. And then there's a whole kind of cohort of Jews as well uh, living and worshiping in Thessalonica. Uh, so this is the town, politically and religiously. What's the occasion? Why is the letter written? Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they've kind of uh, made their way up out of Jerusalem, and they're uh, stopping from town to town uh, preaching the gospel. And here they stop in Thessalonica and preach, and this, this church springs up in this kind of uh, mighty and uh, catastrophic way. 
And then what happens, uh, uh, Paul is kind of kicked out of the city. Uh, they want to uh, beat him and imprison him. And so uh, he runs off to Berea and then to Corinth. And, and so he's in Corinth, and he's wondering, like, because there was such a mighty movement of the gospel in Thessalonica, where they'd just been about three, four weeks ago. And, and he's wondering how it's going. So he sends Timothy back to say, hey, how's it going there in Thessalonica? And Timothy returns to Paul and says, actually, it's going great. They're thriving in affliction. And, and so Paul says, oh, that's amazing. Uh, take this letter back to them uh, that we can correspond and he can share with them uh, things on his mind and heart. The way the church begins in Thessalonica explains why the church is a countercultural movement. So this is the context. How does the church begin? Uh, to hear that story, we have to go back to Acts chapter 16 and following. So if you've got your Bibles, and I would encourage you to bring a Bible on Sunday morning to take notes and, and, and jot in it and say, what is the Lord uh, teaching me in this time through his scriptures? Maybe bring a journal and kind of uh, take notes on what the Lord is sharing through his scriptures. Go back to Acts chapter 16 where we hear the way the church in Thessalonica begins because it explains why we are therefore a countercultural movement. Acts chapter 15, you've got Paul and Barnabas there in Jerusalem, right? Uh, the, the gospel has exploded. Jesus is, is risen from the dead. He, he teaches for 40 days. 500,000 see him, right? Uh, and, and that launches this whole movement. So it, it's messy. So all the apostles are gathering in Jerusalem to kind of make some decisions of how do we govern? What, how do we live as a church together with Jew and Gentile? And, and then Paul uh, leaves that meeting in Jerusalem with Barnabas. And, and he's talking with Barnabas about saying, hey, let's go from city to city. And, and Barnabas says, great, let's bring John Mark and and Paul says, nah, I don't really want to bring John Mark. He deserted us earlier. So they part ways. And Paul goes off and he takes Silas with him. And then in his next town in Lystra, they come there and then they pick up Timothy as well in chapter 16 of Acts. So now you've got Paul and Silas and Timothy. They've left Jerusalem. They're kind of heading up the coast and they're heading to kind of modern day Turkey and over to Greece where they're going to stop in Thessalonica. And chapter 16 tells the story of Philippi. And this is kind of one of the places they stop right before Thessalonica. And, and you got Paul and Silas and Timothy there. And, and, and they uh, share the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done with Lydia. She's this uh, leading woman in the city. She's an entrepreneur. She's well-respected. And, and she comes to Christ and probably uses her home for one of these. It's a giant home for this kind of home church to gather all the believers. And people are kind of, man, it's like a huge movement. And, and then uh, this uh, slave girl who is... Uh, enslaved by a demonic spirit and being used by her owners to, to bring money in for fortune telling and things like that. She also comes to know Christ. So you got kind of the, the tip of the top and then you got uh, those uh, down at the bottom coming to know Christ and, and she receives Christ but her owners are furious because now they're losing money. So they take Paul and Silas and Timothy and they beat them and they imprison them. And then in a miraculous way, uh, they're rescued, and, and the jailer, if you know the story, comes to Christ with his whole family. It's amazing. And, and, and Paul and Timothy and Silas say, man, what an amazing time in Philippi, but we're out of here, right? Like, uh, that's not going to go well for us if we stay there. So they pull up on Thessalonica in chapter 17 of Acts. Now, when they passed through Amphilus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So here's the scene. They are in Thessalonica now, and for three days, kind of as Paul often does, he goes into the synagogue first. And when he makes his way to the synagogue, he, he's preaching. There's a, at least 10 male Jews in the town because they have a synagogue. But that, it turns out there's a whole slew of Jews there. And, and he is uh, preaching in the synagogue and reasoning from the scriptures, uh, uh, talking to them from the Old Testament, saying, The Christ has come. The one we're all waiting for. The Savior of the world, Jew and Gentile, has come. He is here. He's reasoning from the Scriptures. And then it says, uh, some of them were persuaded. So some of these Jews come to Christ, and then the Greeks come to Christ as well. And actually, a whole bunch of devout Greeks do. And then not a few, many, leading women of the town come to Christ. So what happens here is, is Paul shows up, and he starts talking from the Scriptures that we are to be a people who now worship the Christ who has come, the Savior, and many, all kinds of people who have all kinds of backgrounds and cultures, all begin aligning under the Savior, Jesus. Now you can imagine this creates quite a stir. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. I like how it's explained there. They formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out. Verse 5 of chapter 17 in Acts. So they find Jason uh, because they know he's housing this group who's coming to the town to talk about the Christ who is proclaimed in the scriptures that we are to worship. And they take Jason, and when they could not find this crowd uh, of Paul and Silas and Timothy, they must have been hiding, they drag Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. Uh, do you see what they say there? This is uh, interesting because the, uh, the Jews are rising up and they say, uh, there's a huge problem here. Uh, this group has, who has flipped the world upside down in Philippi, uh, they're here now flipping our world upside down. They're living across the, against the grain. They're, they're swimming up the stream and, and they're flipping the world upside down. Why? Because they are saying that there is another king and his name is Jesus. They are saying that we ought to have allegiance to another king. It's not Caesar who we're worshiping. It's Jesus who we worship. And this is flipping everything upside down. Because when we give our allegiance to another, he changes the way we act. And it is often against the grain. It is often swimming upstream. It is often upside down to the world. Because the reality is, why are we a countercultural church? The reality is it is because we worship a risen Savior. The one who is proclaimed in the scriptures, the one who has come and turned everything in our worlds upside down. We worship him. I like the fish, and uh, 
this kind of idea makes me think of this kind of moment here. This is the Atlantic salmon. Uh, whether you are in the Falls of Shin in the United Kingdom or the Russian River in Alaska, uh, what happens is these salmon, they go from the Atlantic and they swim upstream up a mighty river that is flowing down and they go upstream and they hit these falls and, and then this amazing moment happens when they, they jump out of the water to get up the falls so they can get home to these kind of uh, more shallow pools where they will spawn and lay thousands of eggs with hopes that one or two salmon will make it from each of these pockets of thousands of eggs. And they, they make their way, it is, not hard, it is hard and it is not easy, up these rivers. And what's the next thing you think of when you, when you see this picture? You know, I watched a lot of YouTube videos this past week on the Atlantic salmon. So what's, what's the next thing you think of when you see these huge fish leaping up out of these falls? The bears, right? The grizzlies. See, what happens is all of these grizzlies get among the rocks and, and the largest ones fight for the best feeding spots and, and they get ready and they literally, with their mouths open, wait for the salmon who are swimming upstream to jump right in their mouths. And they eat them, they tear them to shreds right there, they, they fight with their cubs over the flesh of these salmons, right? Uh, because swimming upstream is hard and it's not safe. Swimming upstream is not easy, and it is not safe. Because our whole world, our whole lives, is all flipped upside down when we give our allegiance to Christ. See, when we decide, I, I will not worship my work, I will worship my Savior. I, I will not worship my political party, I will worship my Savior. I will not worship my wife or my kids, I will worship my Savior. Uh, it, it changes everything about our lives in a countercultural way. And it is not easy, and it is not safe. Before we get to why we would live this way then, why would we choose to live this way, I just want to ask this question. Has anything in your life been flipped upside down because of Christ? Has anything around you in your spheres of influence, in your workplace or your home or your relationships been flipped upside down because of Christ, your allegiance to Him? Have you ruffled any relational feathers because of Jesus? Uh, you know, have you, you said to a coworker, yeah, I was at church this past week, or I was reading my Bible, or yeah, I'm a Christian, so that means kind of I'm, I'm aligning and following Jesus. Have you said that kind of thing and, and ruffled the relationship, and the feathers of that relationship are, are all ruffled because your allegiance to Jesus? Have you acted a certain way in your family or, or in your dating relationships in such a way that, that made people scratch your head? Have you treasured your wife like she is a queen or treasured your husband like he is a king because of Jesus? Has it changed any sort of relationship in your life because of Christ? Have you altered your decisions or your plans because of Jesus and your allegiance to him? Anything flipped upside down? Or, or kind of did you take your five-year plan and you, you, you continue following it while you took Jesus and you just slipped them in your back pocket and kept living life? Nothing's different. Nothing's changed. It's just kind of Jesus is a part of what I'm already about. Any relational feathers ruffled? Any decisions altered 
Or have you ever opened your mouth because of Jesus? Ever had an opportunity where a, a coworker or a neighbor or a friend is kind of saying one thing about how life ought to function or, or who Jesus is or who Christians are, and you had that moment, you're thinking, I'm just going to kind of keep my mouth shut here. Or did you humbly and kindly and respectfully speak up and say, actually, this is who I believe Jesus is, and this is why I'm living for him, or this is what he says about this or that, and, and actually he's an amazing Savior, a wonderful person, right? And have you ever opened your mouth or ruffled a relational feather or altered a plan because of Christ? Has anything because of your allegiance to Jesus been flipped upside down? It is not normal to follow a risen Savior. Our lives ought not to be normal. So if it's hard and it's, it's dangerous, why, well, why would we do it? And we've seen in the way that the Thessalonican church started that it, it, it creates a trajectory of a countercultural life to be lived as a Christian and as the church. And, and it's not easy and it's not safe. So why? Why would we choose to live this way? And I, I think the answer is found for us in the two themes that that emerge out of 1 Thessalonians in the letter that we'll be looking at in the next 11 weeks. Now, the first reason that compels us to live for Christ in a countercultural way is that we live to please God, not man. We live to please God, not man. The, the book of 1 Thessalonians starts this way. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Uh, the letter ends that same kind of way where, where Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He says, We have a God who has poured grace and peace out on us in Christ. And when we think of this God, here are the things we think of, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, that we are loved by God and that he has chosen you. That we have a God who's poured grace and peace on us in Christ. And, and when he looks at you, he says, man, I love you because of who Jesus is. And then he says, even, not just do I love you, but I have, appro I have approved you. I have uh, give, poured my approval over you. That you are right and good and righteous. He, he says this down in, in chapter 2, verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, how? Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He says it again in chapter 4, verse 2, that we ought to walk in a way as to please God just as you are doing and to do so more and more. This idea of, of pleasure is, is an idea that's captured both our mind and our affections. That when we look at our God, what we realize is well, it's not what we expected. We expected he'd look at us and say, man, I'm so disappointed with you. Man, you have lived in such a way, I, I'm not going to extend my love to you. I'm not going to choose you. I'm not going to run towards you in Christ. I'm not going to pour grace and peace on you. I'm not going to approve you or love you. But in fact, what we see in Christ that, is that he welcomes us home as his sons and daughters, that he pours his approval on us, his, his love on us, his affection on us, and that does something to us. That transforms our affections for him where we would say, I want to please, I want to love and follow and serve you. You have all of me in my allegiance. 
the sixth grade, and I not yet discovered girls. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a middle schooler, and I, I you know, I'm zit covered and in the cafeteria, and uh, we're sitting at our table of all boys, and and we look across to the table of all girls, and and Jesse says to me, one of the guys sitting at our table, he says, "Hey, I think Erica likes you," and I'm like. Erica, oh, Erica, yeah, yeah, I think I've got an English class with her. And, and he's like, yeah. And then they're all kind of saying, yeah, I, yeah, we heard she likes you. And then I'm thinking, ah, she likes me. Actually, I, I kind of think I like her. You know, like, and so I started kind of getting to know Erica in sixth grade. It was awkward, right? It was sixth grade. And, uh, but what had happened is I learned that her affections were on me, right? Like, uh, she cared about me, like me. And what happens is we see in the book of Thessalonians and, and, and what we see in who Jesus is and what he's done is that when he looks at us, he says, I choose that one. I love that one. I'm going to pour my approval on that one. He or she is mine. And that does something. That, that, that sparks an affection in our mind, a, a feeling, a love a, a, of who Jesus is and what he's done. And when we say, man, I want to please you too. You are the Savior of the world. So much greater than any sort of trite or silly sixth grade affection. But that's not normal. It's not normal to say, I will live for the pleasure and the worship of the one true God. What's normal is to say, I'll live for the pleasure of my wife or the pleasure of my kids or the pleasure of my workplace or my boss. That, that's normal. That will shape your life and your culture in, in a with the currents and with the stream kind of way. What is abnormal countercultural is to say, I will worship him. I will live to please him first. That he's not just some piece of my life. He has my whole life. See, that's what we normally do in our lives. We just kind of make him a little piece of it. But this is a kind of a wholesale reordering, a new organizing principle to our lives. It is starkly in contrast. So different than the way our world lives. To say, I will live for the pleasure of my Savior first. In every aspect of who I am and what I say and how I work, I'll live for him. And this is to say he doesn't just get a little piece or he's one of the kind of list of my life where I'm a husband, I'm, I'm a worker, I've got uh, friends and relationships and kind of leisure time, and these are all the different things. Oh, and I've got my religion piece. I've got my spirituality piece. I'm a Christian too, right? That's well, parts of the pieces of who I am. No, this is a full kind of reordering of life. Of saying, I will live to please my Savior Jesus and everything else in my life will take shape by who he is and what he's done. Because he looks at me with his pleasure and his grace and his peace and his approval because he has died in my place. He has lived in my place. He is my Savior and he loves me. Not in order to, 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 to attain his pleasure, but because he has already given me his pleasure. That is abnormal. That will look very different in your life. Now, Paul's going to talk about all these different areas that he'll get a hold of. Our, 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 our uh, sexual orientations, how to live in this area of sex, how to live in, in work, and, and how to uh, live in relationships with one another. He goes through the letter and says, because Jesus is the one you live to please, it changes everything. Changes everything.
The second reason I think we are compelled to live a countercultural life, though it is not easy and it is not safe, is this. The end is not near, or not here, sorry. The end is not here, but it is near. The end is not here yet, but the end is near. It is one of the main themes uh, that we find all through 1 Thessalonians. Uh, see, the Thessalonican church, uh, when Paul came to them, uh, he said, you know, that Jesus has uh, lived, he has died, he has risen, and he will, after he's ascended, come again. And they believed him. And they believed him. That Jesus would actually return, that he is a real person, that he is God himself, that he will actually return. They believed him so much, and they thought it was so soon that many of them quit their jobs. They're like, well, I guess I don't need to work anymore, have any savings, right? And he calls them out for being lazy, for doing that. He says, no, the, the end is not here yet. It, it is near, so, uh, you know, keep working faithfully for your Savior at work with excellence and creativity and, and work hard. But, but, but the, the, the end is near. It is coming, but it's not here yet. So don't quit your job. And, and they, say, they say things like, but what about our uh, fellow believers in Christ who've already died? What's going to happen when he returns to them? And, and Paul says, man, they're going to be okay. Uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and following, he says, they're asleep, uh, but they're going to be raised first when Jesus comes back. So, uh, you know, they've died, and that's a real problem, but uh, Christ is coming back, and they'll be resurrected too. And, and look, uh, uh, don't quit your job. Keep at it, because he's not here yet. I'm struck by the fact that they actually believed it. And I'm convicted by the fact that I wonder, do I actually believe Jesus is returning in the flesh to bring both judgment and restoration? Every one of the chapters in 1 Thessalonians ends with this reminder that the end is not here yet, but it is near. Chapter 1, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from this wrath to come when he returns. Chapter 2, verse 19, for what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Isn't it, is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. When he comes back, we're going to be overjoyed because you're going to go to heaven with him when he returns. What a joy you are to us. Chapter 3, verse 12 and following, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's coming back with all his saints. And then chapter 4, verses 13, all the way to chapter 5, verse 11, captures details and ideas about when that day comes when Christ returns. So the end is not here uh, highlights for us the fact that every minute we are given now in this gap of time as we wait for his return, every minute matters. Every minute matters. This is so abnormal, right? Uh, to live with the end in mind as though every minute matters for eternal purposes because uh, though the end is not here now and every minute matters, the end is near and therefore the eternal purposes and all of eternity shapes our life today. That eternity is at stake. It's not here now, so every minute that I live right now in faithfulness to my God matters, but it is coming soon 
therefore eternity is at stake, and the purpose of my life is shaped by all of eternity. As Paul will say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship, it's in heaven. And we eagerly await our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is not normal. This is countercultural to say, I'm not just going to live for the fleeting pleasures of the minute, but, but I'm going to live with eternal purposes in mind. I'm going to view everyone as an eternal being as they are who will either spend eternity with God or eternity separated from God. I know myself that I will either spend eternity with God or eternity separated from God forever. And that the things that God shapes in eternal ways now will carry on into eternity when he returns and redeems all things. Our life matters today. Every minute counts and eternity is at stake. We're compelled to live a countercultural life, though it is not easy and it will be hard and dangerous because we have a Savior whose pleasure is on us in such a way that our pleasure might be on him alone. And because we know eternity, though it's not here now, is coming. This is exactly how Jesus lived. Uh, he lived to please his Father and for eternal purposes. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 captures this for us. It says this, For since we believe that Jesus died, and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, we believe that Jesus, that, that this Jesus, he actually lived this countercultural life. In a, in a sense, he is our salmon savior, right? Swimming upstream from the beginning of his days to the end of his days. Where, where people were treating women like trash in his day, he's treating them like treasure. When, when people are uh, overlooking uh, those without means and, and, and not caring for them, he stops and he cares. When, when people are demeaning those of, of other races, he, he runs towards the Samaritan. Uh, when people are living this legalistic life to earn their ways to God and, and shaming those who are not living this way, he comes to pour on grace. See, he swims a countercultural life from day one. From day one, living to please his Father and for eternal purposes. And then he dies a countercultural death. He takes our sin and, and the penalty of our sin upon himself. And when people are spitting on him, he's forgiving them. And then he's risen to newness of life where he's going to return and eternity will come with him when Jesus returns and makes all things new. And, and therefore, why would we live for any less purpose in our lives? Other than in light of all of eternity when Christ comes back. We are compelled by the love of Christ to live a countercultural life, an abnormal life for him. To please him with all of eternity in mind. You know, what I love about that salmon illustration is that they're swimming home. They're headed home. Uh, up to these pools where they're going to spend some time with, with one another and then uh, continue their family line, right? They're headed home. And it's a countercultural swim that whole way there. We have a Savior who came to make a way for us and swam upstream the whole way to the cross. He lived to please the Father at every step. He lived with eternal purposes in mind. And he lived in a way that he would bring us home. That he would return and all things would be made new. 
And we, his sons and daughters in Christ, would, would spend eternity with him in his pleasure. Because his body was broken and his blood was spilled, because he swam upstream the whole way, because he paid for our sin, because he put his approval on us, it's said and done. That means every minute matters today as we wait for all of eternity, but it's said and done. So if you're trusting in Christ this morning, would you remember what your countercultural Savior has done for you? His body was broken, his blood was spilled to make you his son, make you his daughter, to pour his grace and to pour his peace, to pour his approval and his love on you, to bring you home. And if you're not trusting in Christ this morning, don't take the elements, but, but instead would you just receive Christ? Would you talk to him in prayer and say, I want to live for you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard. It's not going to be safe. But, but I've seen who you are, Jesus, and I want to live for you. And in faith, would you call out to him this morning? But for those of us who are waiting for the return of our Savior, will we take and eat and remember who he is and what he's done? His body broken and his blood spilled for us. Let's take and eat together.